Policy Beyond Politics, a podcast series by the Center for Public Policy Research. The Center for Public Policy Research, or CPPR, is a public policy think tank located in Kochi. We engage in diverse fields like urban reform, livelihood, education, health, governance, law, and international relations and security. Our podcast series covers a host of issues of current and contemporary relevance in the public policy domain. Previous episodes of our podcast series can be found on our website, www.cppr.in. I am Soumya Singh from CPPR. In this episode of Visible Women, Invisible Equality, we will explore the social and cultural barriers faced by women to get employed in the manufacturing sector, especially factories. For this discussion, we have with us Ms. Mitali Nikor. Ms. Mitali is an experienced economist and public policy specialist with a demonstrated history of advising multilateral organizations such as the World Bank and United Nations, as well as private sector consulting firms such as the PwC and Genesis Analytics. She is also skilled in industry analysis, market assessment, value chain assessment, logistics and transport sector, and urban development and has a strong academic record with the MSc in economics from London School of Economics and Political Science. She is also the founder of research group, Nicor Associates. Good evening, ma'am. Welcome to Policy Beyond Politics. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And, uh, you know, thank you for raising this topic in your podcast. Uh, I'm very excited for the conversation that, you know, we're about to have. And uh, yeah, I think let's, let's take it from there. Very, very good to interact with young people like you. Thank you so much, ma'am. It's a pleasure having you here. So starting with, uh, there are various social and cultural patterns in livelihood activities that have an impact on the potential avenues for women to participate in the workforce, including factories. Mm -hmm. So what do you think are some of these barriers faced by women in entering the factory workforce? So, um, Soumya, I think, you know, it's it's a very very complicated um, kind of situation in our country today. We are seeing that India is amongst, in fact, it's the only emerging economy where the overall female labor force participation rate is so low. And many economists have spent decades trying to understand why it is so low. And in fact, I recently attended a conference in Geneva at the, it was a you know conference of the International Association of Feminist Economists. And, you know, the Ashwini Deshpande was there, Rosa Ibram was there, I was there, so many others. We all are sitting in one room, Jayati Ghosh was there, uh, Naila Kabir was there. So, you know, we, we had every female feminist economist uh, worth her salt um, over there discussing and and you know deliberating upon the fact that generation after generation of women are simply not stepping into the workforce they are not even joining the labor force they are not even looking for work they have simply become accustomed to some social norms you know and because of these social norms uh, there is a push towards withdrawing or actually not even entering from the beginning itself, uh, you know, the workforce. So education is okay because education is something that makes you more desirable on the marriage market. 
but working and you know being in the workforce is is not okay and i think that is something that even with diva thar's new research that's coming out i absolutely am a big fan of hers as well and and we can see that you know even in her paper she's actually found quantitative evidence for the fact that you know there is a discouragement effect on the marriage market now coming to the nicore associates research on this so what we've been doing is that we've actually looked at government data because we are very interested in government data and rather doing surveys and experiments we really want to see what is in the government data so we built a data bank and that data bank starts in 1955 and goes on till 2020 21 now the latest one and we have used the government's national statistical organization surveys that happen you know from 55 till now so it's almost you know spanning the entire period of independent india to see the trends in female labor force participation and we can see that in 1950 55 you know 55 56 that those those you know historical data to today there's hardly any change in female labor force participation in urban areas it's all it's in i mean of course it has gone down for for both rural and urban women but rural women you know in 55 56 the labor force participation was around 40 45% you know in that range and it is now down to around 25 25ish percent going up a little bit in in 22 in in, in this year 2021 for urban women it was hovering around 20 22% in the 50s and even now it's hovering around 18 to 20%. So it's literally like 80% of urban women are simply not working. 60% of rural women are simply not working. And when I look at you know the current data for uh, the year 2020 21 and we look at the trends you know just zoom in on the trends for say the three, last 3 years or 4 years there has been a slight increase because 2017 18 was the year in which the female labor force participation rate hit its nadir that is its lowest point in the last 7 decades and then the last 3 4 years there has been an increase and we are again trying to ex- you know explain that we find that that increase is entirely driven by rural women in the agriculture sector so if you look at this whole macro picture and this whole macro story the macro story is clearly pointing to the fact that women today are working in two types of professions two big blocks uneducated rural women are primarily working in agriculture because if you look at the rates of rural women's uh, you know labor force participation workforce participation around 75% is in agriculture and in urban areas the post graduate women and graduate women are primarily working in the services sector and even within services it's primarily education healthcare like your nurses and teachers and doctors etc so either you have a woman who is highly educated doing a very respectable job or you have women who are you know uneducated and doing you know say work on their own farms or their own fields or they are even migrating as agricultural wage labor which is you know again a subsistence profession rather than you know working in all of this where is manufacturing 
right? So manufacturing is a very, very small proportion of women's employment, 7 to 10% uh, in both urban and rural areas. So I think somewhere because of this occupational segregation through the decades, the social norms surrounding women's work, because the decision to work is seldom a woman's alone. It's a decision that is made with the family. Okay, will you get support in case you have a child or you have an elderly person at home which requires care work because that's your responsibility? Or will you have a factory which is close to your home where you can actually walk or you can you know, find a safe means of transport to go to? Is your mobility restricted? If you look at some of the data from the National Family and Health Survey, nearly 40 to 45% of women are still saying that they cannot leave the house without the permission of their in-laws, husband or parents, right? So in such a scenario, when you have mobility restrictions, you have unpaid work, you have um, you know, norms around what is an appropriate job for women, you, it has resulted in this occupational segregation of highly educated women in, you know, in urban areas working in what are white collar professions and then, you know, within rural areas being clustered in subsistence professions in agriculture. And as a result, women have hardly had an opportunity to, you know, participate in manufacturing. And in fact, the only way that they have been present in manufacturing is in very traditional industries. Like say, if I'm wearing a handloom or a handicraft sari today, it is most likely be woven by a woman, right? But that is work she can do from her home. She doesn't need to leave her home. So she's part of those value chains right at the beginning, but she's not part of the returns that you get because she's not connected to the market. She's very far away from the market. So I think that, you know, in the manufacturing sector as well, it's a small proportion. And even within that small proportion, where they are in the value chain is at a very early stage, at a point where, you know, the value addition is considered low value and, and they are not getting much of the profits from what they manufacture. Thank you so much, ma'am, for your views. And as you mentioned about occupational segregation and market alienation, I think these two are one very big reasons as to why many women are not entering the market workforce. And also you mentioned about that women entering the job markets is a decision that they do not take alone. Hmm. So I would like to pose the next question based on that. So sometimes when discussing the declining uh, low female participation rate of women, we often overlook the crucial fact that majority of women already work as home care providers. Yeah. Regardless of whether they work in the labor force, they are still expected to care for the household and the children. And depending on one's economic, cultural and social status, as well as the presence of familial support, as you mentioned earlier, this degree may vary. As a result, women are at a disadvantage compared to men when they begin working in a job. So how do you think can women deal with care responsibilities and obligations that pose a significant obstacle to their employment in the manufacturing industry? So actually, when we have crunched the data um, at Nikkor Associates, we have, uh, you know, we have been looking at the TUS data, which came out in 2019, the time use survey from NSS. 
And we actually are doing some correlations uh, with the NFHS 2019-21 data set. Just to understand exactly what you said that, you know, maybe there would be some variation depending on whether a woman is employed or if there are different states, maybe in different states, the norms around agency are different. So maybe the, there would be some variation. We are finding none, which is a shocking finding. So it just shows you that regardless of whether women's, women's agency is, uh, you know, there is, there is uh, she has the permission to take household decisions or if she has a mobile phone or if she's working outside her home or if she can even have uh, the mobility is not constrained. Even then, there is hardly any variation in the number of hours in a day that she spends on unpaid work. So this shows us and, and this is the same across states. The interstate variation is hardly significant. It is not statistically significant. So what this is showing us is that unpaid care work norms are highly sticky. Even if you are highly educated, highly skilled, you are the CEO of a company, you are somebody who has a startup, you are somebody who is working in the manufacturing sector, you are somebody who's a member of a self-help group at the ground level, or you are simply a woman who is working at home doing nothing else. There is hardly any variation in the hours of your day spent on unpaid work. So the unpaid work that working women are doing is coming out of their leisure time and not out of the time spent on unpaid work. So this again feeds into the entire narrative of women being primary caregivers and secondary income earners because of the fact that even a working woman is not spending less hours on unpaid work as per the data that's coming in from the government. So that's you know the first finding. Now the second thing is when we talk about manufacturing sector in particular, spotlighting that, now, what is the difference? The difference is the work environment in the manufacturing sector. When you go to the manufacturing sector, factory shop floor, I've been to actually several industrial areas and factory shop floors in India. And not even in one place have I found a woman's toilet. So I have had to use the toilet personally of the person, say, who owns the factory because he you know, often keeps a toilet in his room, which is private. And, and that's the only time I've, and, and that also I'm allowed to use because obviously I've gone there for research or, uh, you know, some purpose of that nature. And I'm, you know, somebody from the urban areas, educated, etc. So there's a class divide. He's not going to let a factory worker who is a woman use his personal bathroom, right? So there is no toilet for women in large number of industrial zones, industrial areas and factory shop floors. This issue of toilets is also there in urban areas. In fact, one friend of mine who works in live mint, she's a journalist and she actually did research on this in corporate sector. And even there, they found that number of companies didn't have toilets for women. So, you know, in manufacturing, this problem is much, much more pervasive. Now, the second issue is that there are no creches. I mean, if you don't have toilets, then how can you even have creches? The Maternity Benefits Act actually mandates that you need to have creches in your workplaces. But it says that you need to have creches under certain conditions. 
So the factories often say that, oh, we don't actually meet these conditions. For example, we don't have num a number of female employees, so we don't need creches. Now, if the act would say that you need to have creches regardless of whether women are employed by your company or not, because even men could use creches, that thought has not arisen in our policymakers as of yet. So therefore, we have a situation where factories don't have creches, they don't have toilets, and they don't have any kind of facilities for performing care work. And childcare takes up around 44% of women's care work time, as per the time you serve. The second biggest activity is cooking. So if these two activities actually take up 60 to 70% of the amount of time spent on care work. So now if you don't have crashes, your biggest care you know, burden is not taken care of. And you don't have any help. I mean, in, in urban areas, you can get help if you are a rich woman. So therefore you can get you know, get to work. But in a manufacturing setup, as you are a, you know, semi-skilled or unskilled worker, she cannot get a cook to come to her house and make food for her. She has to do it herself. Her husband is also not pitching. So then, and then she has a baby or two or three. And then how does she go to a factory to work if they don't have a crash? And then the third thing is that if she's a lactating mother, and there's not even a toilet in the factory, then leave alone having a feeding room. So none of these facilities and factory environments are set up in such a manner where it's considered a man's job. It's thought that, oh, you know, you have to lift heavy equipment, you have to lift bags, you have to lift these things. But what people forget is that even in construction, women are working and they are lifting heavy loads. And secondly, factory work is becoming more and more automated. So it doesn't actually require as much physical labor as it requires knowledge of operating certain machinery and equipment. So, you know, it's not as though women cannot physically do it, but it is just a bias. So when you combine all of these things together, and especially the infrastructural deficits at the factory shop and at the industrial corridors, at the industrial parks, even the new industrial parks that are being financed, you know, we have encouraged through some of the projects that I've been part of, where we have encouraged a lot of developers to go in and, you know, take care of these things, to have these facilities, even the, even the commute from, say, a village area or a settlement colony where, you know, workers are residing till the factory. It's not like going to your own field and just working there. You know, agricultural fields where 75% of rural women are working are probably attached to their homes. Whereas if you have to go to a factory, you need to commute. Now, if that commute is not safe because you will have to walk if you are a woman, it's very unlikely that you will take a cycle because you will not own a cycle and public transport is not available. So, so there's the mobility gap, there's the, you know, childcare and crash uh, facilities not being available at, you know, at the factory and there is the issue of the social norms around, okay, this is a man's job. Um, these combine in, in sort of creating a scenario where because of care work, women are not able to, you know, take that decision to go and work in the manufacturing sector. Thank you so much, ma'am. I think the way with which you so elaborately explained the class divide that also plays a major role in segregating women itself in the factory workforce was very enlightening. 
And ma'am, since you're an experienced economist and public policy specialist, what do you think could be the possible policy measures that could provide equal access to women in the labor workforce, given that we have a favorable demographic dividend? And who should be responsible for bringing in the changes? You know, the other day I was actually uh, working with some of my team members and uh, I was telling them, I said, you know, there are so many times when we get team members and, and young students, etc., who just, who need so much guidance, you know, and then sometimes we get who are really, really advanced, sharp, smart. Do we look at their gender? We don't. Anybody who is sharp, advanced, we pair them up with somebody who is a bit slower or, you know, who needs more guidance and they can work as a team and, and produce something which is, you know, a very good document for uh, for us at, at our think tank. And, you know, I'm sure you all have the same experience, right? Even in a college or in a college project, everybody is working together or in your organization also. Teamwork at the end of the day, some people may not be able to be that fast. Okay, that's fine. They are still doing good work. But this can only work if the good people and, and the ones who are not so good are working together. And it doesn't matter what their gender is. Now, if your gender becomes a deciding factor of who's going to be working and who isn't going to be working, are you definitely getting the best talent you know, from your country into the workforce? Certainly not. It may be that the woman is very smart and the man who she married, her husband, is not as good at his work. But just because the gender roles are entrenched, it is as though she has to stay at home and he has to go to work. So this is what we in economics call money left on the table, isn't it? It's, a, it's inefficient. If they had swapped their roles and the comparative advantage of the woman was to go out and work and the man could handle at home, then in that case, they would have, you know, enhanced their production uh, possibility frontier or their consumption possibility frontier and they could have consumed and earned more. So this, this gap is actually an economic inefficiency. We can clearly see that. Now, therefore, that, that means that there is a case for policy action, right? We, we say that there is a case for policy action when there is a market failure. Now, this is a market failure which is resulting from social norms and patriarchal inefficiencies, which is fueling this market failure. Therefore, there is a case for government policy action. Now, what can government do in such a situation? It has to realign incentives. We have to play with incentive structures to incentivize and break the social norms, right? Because the social norms are deeply entrenched. So the first thing they can think about, especially for manufacturing, is wage subsidy. So at this point, none of the MSMEs, especially for MSME sector, I'm saying, for MSME sectors, if we provide a wage subsidy that whenever you hire a woman, you get a tax break of 5%, 6%. It brings down the wage bill when companies are hiring women as opposed to men. So it makes women cheaper to employ. At this point, what do we have? Women are more expensive to employ. Why? Because of the Paternity Act. You have to give six months of maternity leave and in that time, you have to bear the entire cost of the maternity leave, paid uh, leave, 
and you have to then hire a person to do her job also right because that work has to still get done so if you give wage subsidies then you are realigning the incentives and making women cheaper to employ so automatically that's one way of uh, you know sort of creating the incentive structures now the second thing is you have to think about skill training and education one of the major problems is the gender gaps in skill training in any case a very low proportion of our workforce has actually undergone any form of skill training it's around 5 to 6% now within that also women is just around 1 to 3% so we need to increase the number of women undergoing skill training these women who have enrolled in a lot of the skill training work under the pm uh, you know kvy the kaushal vikas yojana short term skilling in that 50% of trainees were women but they were all doing courses which are in feminized sectors like beauty you know beauty and salons and or you know that those services were the preferred options amongst women none of them were going for skill training in say plumbing or you know electric electricals or uh, you know automotive manufacturing engineering based um, so we need a lot more women to come into those non traditional training now how can you incentivize this either you can make it cheaper for women to train in those fields or you can put quotas and say that you know at least 30% of this class has to be female otherwise we will not give the because under pm kaushal vikas yojana basically the government gives a private skill training provider some subsidy for each student so say we will not give the subsidy for your class until you ensure that 30% of your class is female so again then you are creating that even in your pipeline you are creating an availability of skilled women who can take up that now so that's the second thing you can do the third thing is around integrating women led enterprises in supply chains so a lot of you know i mean a lot of the manufacturing sector does not do b2c sales there's a lot of b2b business to business sales that happen so you can as a government you are one of the biggest buyers you can have uh, you know a situation where government does preferential procurement from women led enterprises at the same time you can encourage preferential procurement from women led enterprises even for private entities so so that you know the back end manufacturing in the value chain is incentivized for women entrepreneurs and there's a ready market for them so i think i have just given these three ideas there are so many more that you know we can devise whether it's uh, you know thinking about national rural livelihood mission and upscaling it subsidies for setting up toilets in the factory shop or you know even integrating manufacturing more in the you know education and school curriculums so there's a, and then of course social norms and targeting and you know so having influencers and social media campaigns and even just radio campaigns to change the notion of what it means to do factory work and have you know women role models in every village who are doing factory work and you know recognizing their work so there is so much more we can do so there's so much that government can do there's so much that even private sector entities can do you know but we have to really have more and more of conversation and awareness at a macro level 
and which then percolates at micro level and from bottom up as well. On both, uh, you know, sides, we really need to have more of a push on this. Definitely, ma'am. Thank you so much. I had one follow-up question to you. So, as you suggested in your first suggestion that we could probably come up with uh, strategies to uh, incentivize women in a different way, especially the ones uh, who are coming to the factory labor workforce and under the Maternity Benefit Act, it becomes expensive to hire them. So, reducing the tax amount that is actually put up to employers could be reduced. Uh, but uh, wouldn't doing that is uh, going to give rise to another problem of the gender pay gap that already exists in our society, wherein women are paid low? So, so you know, this is exactly why uh, we have to look at both the employer and the employee perspective. You know, I definitely think that the gender pay gap is abhorrent, isn't it? I mean, we know it has been sticky. If we look at the data we have calculated that for casual rural work, the gender pay gap actually stands at 66% between 1993-94 to 2018-19. And it has not moved. In the, in the urban service sector, regular employment salaried, it stands at 80%. So women are getting 80% of the male wage. It's actually the best in the urban salaried, um, you know, sort of group the worst in the casual rural group so there's no doubt that the gender wage gap is sticky and it's also a big big problem however at this point we are trying to solve a problem of trying to move the needle and first change the norms which are too sticky where where women are just not even sufficiently represented in the workforce and we are not saying to you know, the manufacturing sector that, oh, if we give you a tax subsidy, don't pass it on to the women, right? We are giving the subsidy from the government side to incentivize them to hire more women. Ideally, they should pass on some of that benefit to the women. It can also be part of the policy to say that you must pass on some of this to the women by ensuring that you, you know, reduce the wage gap. But it's practically quite hard to enforce that. But it can be done. It can be one of the conditions. However, at this point, I think if we don't reach a bare minimum representation of women, right now you don't have women at all in the manufacturing sector until you reach a point where at least 30% of the manufacturing sector workforce is female. You would not be able to start having a conversation about wage gaps because the only reason you have wage gaps at this level is because women feel they have no other option and no other avenue to work. And in fact, the wage gaps are, you know, they, they reduce because of this agricultural's over-representation in their wages. So if they can finally start moving out of agriculture into other professions to start with, then they will have options and then they will have more bargaining power. And then they will be able to ask for more wages. Even men have to unionize and demand for wages. So, you know, and, and women hardly unionize because they don't feel that they belong because they don't have sufficient number of women to even unionize. So we really have to reach that critical mass in terms of representation and then move towards, um, you know, a wage war, which will also come. <laughs> yes, ma'am. 
Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on how we could create a more women inclusive workspace. I am hopeful of a more gender inclusive factory workforce in the future. And with that, we've come to the end of this episode. You can follow and engage with us on our social media handles where we look forward to taking this conversation forward with you all. We will be back with another thought-provoking and an interesting topic for discussion in the next episode. Stay tuned to www.cppr.in. Thank you so much, ma'am.